some people don't have a support system. Uh, some people um, have people around them and give them the message that they have to be strong and get over it fairly quickly. So my role is really to make it okay to have all these emotions. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Pascal Vermont, who is a grief counselor. So Pascal is a psychologist, but she really specifically deals with people that are going through grief. So the loss of a loved one, um, be that a child, a spouse, a parent, um, any other like really major form of grief that someone could be going through is who Pascal helps. So just such a an emotional um, and, and interesting vocation to choose for your life. And we'll talk all about that and the choice and how she helps people deal with really, really difficult times. Without further ado, here is Grief Counselor. Pascal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'd like to start with, I I cannot imagine a more difficult calling in life and like a more difficult job to undertake than what you do. Did something like happen to you earlier in life or something, if you're okay with talking about that, that made you decide to really want to help people that are going through hard times? Um, I think it was my first cultural shock experience when I moved to this country from France. I was really surprised and uh, confounded with the fact that people were not comfortable talking about death or even being around a dead body. Um, I grew up in a small town in France where um, people held wakes in their home and people you know, went to visit other people's homes when someone had died. And even though it was very sad, people seemed to find that he- comforting and healing to be um, to be around death. And when I came to this country, there seemed to be this huge distance between people and the experience of death. And um, as I got older and experienced some of my own losses of various kinds, um, I really became more and more intrigued in working with the uh, process of dying before death in palliative care as well as counseling people after they had lost someone they were close to them. It felt like that was an area that was very much needed, and I felt I could tolerate the pain of other people's death. Man, that is so beautiful and so awesome. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, our our brothers to the South in Mexico, it's like they have Day of the Dead, and they have this whole, like, celebration of life whenever anybody dies. Um, I don't really know what the procedure is in France, but yeah, like, it's nice it's really nice to have more of a, of an okay atmosphere with talking about these things and uh, or maybe even like uh, with the with something like death, like maybe a happy sort of celebration as opposed to, yeah, what we have here, which is so dark and sad. Or allow people to be sad. I think very often people are being told that they have to move on, they have to be strong, crying may not be okay. You know, within a month or two, uh, there's the expectation that people will have recovered from the grief uh, so you can close the door on it forever. Um, it, and it just isn't that way. Yeah. 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 That's definitely true. So is there any sort of, um, procedure involved when you're trying to help someone deal with grief? Are there like steps that you try to take them through, like anything typical that you do? Um, it depends on the kind of grief that it is. Hmm. Uh, grief is a very unique, um, 
process, it affects people very differently based on um, the meaning of the relationship that was lost. You know, losing a parent is very different from losing a spouse, from, from losing a child. Um, in one, in the first one, losing a parent, you've lost your past, right? In losing a spouse, you've lost your present. Mm. In losing a child, you've lost your future. Yeah, absolutely. And depending on the quality of that relationship and the role that you played in it, uh, you're going to need different things. So when I when I sit with someone and talk about um, their pain and there's you know and the many feelings that accompany it, I'm very aware of the role that they played. Uh, I'm aware of the circumstances of the death. Um, a, an expected death is going to give different reaction to uh, one that is sudden, like a suicide or homicide. Uh, I'm also aware of um, ethnic and religious backgrounds and how that may factor mm, into yeah, absolutely into uh, the reaction to to grief. Um, I'm aware of um, other circumstances in someone's life. For example, if you're unhealthy or if you've been ill yourself, or if you've had repeated death over time. Um, you can be hit much more strongly and feel, you know, more vulnerable in in dealing with it. And the personality that you are, all those things are factors in how you're going to cope with grief. So um, wow, that's so that's so like big and complicated. That's interesting, and that's part of the interest for me. You know, my my work involves using my head in doing an assessment of what people may need as well as keeping a very open mind as to what that may be, um, as well as educating people about the process of grief so they don't feel that they're going crazy with the multitude of emotions and thoughts and behaviors that, they, um, that they're having, as well as supporting them and just letting them know that they can take their time grieving, mm. um, that there's no expected trajectory, um, and that they will get there in their own way. And, and I try to give them a little bit of hope that someday the pain will not be quite as uh, strong as it is today. And grief, you know, can be thought of in a very broad term, like, you know, anytime you have a loss in your life, whether it's a loss of a relationship or health or finances or the loss of, a, of someone you're close to, uh, you're going to feel a huge amount of feeling of loss and and many emotions such as um, sadness for sure, just like you were saying, but also feelings like anger, anger at the universe for letting this happen, especially the loss of a child, for example, yeah. um, as well as anger sometimes even irrationally at the, at the person who died for having left that person behind. Mm, interesting. Or and then probably that leads to some amount of guilt or something because now yeah. you're feeling angry that I'm guilty that I'm feeling yeah. angry. That's right. So you have this this ball of emotions kind of a tangled web with, you know, sadness and anger and guilt. And sometimes guilt is realistic and sometimes it's not realistic. So you have to sort that out as well as anxiety because you're not sure and you're scared that you won't be able to go forward or, or feeling completely lost. Um, grief um, affects people in many different levels. And I, this is something I often tell people when I work with them because they find it kind of reassuring that it can affect people on a, um, a physical level where people can be super tense or uh, have headaches or insomnia or stomach aches or always being on the lookout for something else to happen, you know, which is called hypervigilance. And then it can be all these emotions I was just mentioning, you know, this tangle of emotions that can happen repeatedly repetitively or even simultaneously. Um, so it's pretty overwhelming to feel all of that at once. Oh, yeah. And then it can also affect the way you think. People have a hard time after any sort of trauma, uh, and death is certainly a trauma, um, they have a hard time focusing 
concentrating on their work, remembering lists of things that need to be done, um, remembering a very simple things, you know, remembering to eat even or forget to drink water. Um, concentration is not very good or your memory is, is not very good as well. Man, all these things you're saying, it just like it just all ups the degree of difficulty of what you do. I just can't imagine like that then you're trying to have this like real connection with this person to help uh -huh. them through this thing when they're in this fairly disconnected state. Yes, and people go in and out of that state. It's not always present. They go in and out of emotions. Uh, but imagine what it's like if you were to experience this alone. Some people don't have a support system. Uh, some people um, have people around them and give them the message that they have to be strong and get over it fairly quickly. So my role is really to make it okay to have all these emotions. Yeah. To let them know they, you know, everybody experiences those in different ways based on who they are and what the loss meant to them. Uh, but it can be very comforting to have someone actually, you know, say that to them. What sort of advice do you give them as far as, I guess, having to still be a member of society and to be in the real world? Like, I just, I can't imagine something like you mentioned, losing a spouse or something like that. I can't imagine losing your spouse and let's say you're you take a couple of weeks off work, but then like after a couple of weeks, you got to go back to work. Like, I, I can't imagine doing that or going to the grocery store or anything like how how do you help people return to any sort of regular life well hopefully they do have those two weeks and during those two weeks if i'm lucky enough to be with them we can talk about how to prepare themselves to to return to work with messages for example they may want to send ahead of time to their co-workers for example some people will send an email and say please you know i've gone through a tough time uh don't ask me about it i'm not ready to talk about it yet other people really want to talk about it. So depending on who they are, kind of, I walk them through what they will feel the most comfortable doing. Um, some other people find it actually helpful to have, return to a structure, even if they cannot function 100%, to be able to do something that they know how to do well and to have a beginning and an end to a project, even if it's not as good a quality as it might have been otherwise, is a little bit comforting. And it's a distraction. And I tell people that... Uh, alternating between feeling the pain of the loss and then distracting yourself either through work or by time with children or friends or watching a fun movie is actually healthy, trying to do both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which has got to be difficult because then that guilt piece comes back into play of like, shouldn't I just be sitting here thinking about my deceased husband not going to the park today or whatever. Yeah, and that's a very good point that you're making because people have this sense of, uh, you mentioned guilt, but kind of almost like being disloyal to the person who died. Wow, yeah. If I re-engage with life, if I have fun, or if I do the things that I used to enjoy doing, am I closing the door to the pain and am I forgetting the person who died? Um, and I talk, I talk to people a lot about that. Um, and I allow them, I give them permission, you know, I say, well, your loved one probably wouldn't want you to just sit here and be miserable all day long. You know, it's okay. They would want you to actually go forward with life and to take care of your health and to reach out to friends and to other family. Hmm. Do you ever run into issues with people kind of like rejecting you as it were, because it, it's like a look, my husband just died. You've never had a husband that died. Who the hell are you like to give me any sort of advice about what I'm going through right now? 
Oh, I would welcome that sort of comment. I would, <laughs> I would, <laughs> I would never take that personally because yeah. I know it's not meant personally. And um, and I would say you're absolutely right. I don't know that. Please tell me what it's about. What is it like for you to have lost your husband? I can imagine what it's like for you. So please tell me so that I can better understand. Even if I had lost uh, a parent or a spouse. It still would be different for that person, right? That's so, so true. So you want to find out what is it like for you? What was your relationship like? Um, we can't always assume that that relationship was actually 100% positive. Right. There are likely to be some things that were challenging. And it's important to also get to those. Eventually, in my talk with people, um, you know, clearly, initially, you talk about the things they're going to miss about that person. But also gently move it to what are some of the things that were challenging for you in that relationship? What sorts of things will you not miss? Because mm. it allows, it opens the door to um, the ambivalence about the relationship as well as give permission to, to mention them. And if needed, if, if the person feels guilty, to actually somehow help them forgive themselves for some of the things that may have happened in the past. Mm. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the sort of specific sort of like volunteer work that you do so we can break it down a little bit because sure. some of the things you do are <laughs> just like it's I just can't even fathom and it's so incredible to me. So um, one of the things that you do is you volunteer your time here with uh, UCSF, uh, Univer uh, University of California, San Francisco at the uh -huh. hospital there. And if um, like an expecting parent or somebody that just became a parent ends up losing a child, then uh, you're kind of on call with the caseworkers at the hospital um, if one of those parents would like you to come to them and you will like drive out to their house, wherever they're at, and and help them through that time. To your point earlier about, uh, you know, losing your past, present or mm -hmm. future, I it really makes me think that like that there couldn't be a worse thing than losing a child because of the the future aspect involved like this is this life that we were going to have and now we don't get to have that life anymore um, absolutely how how do you work with people like that like what I, I just i wouldn't even know where to begin yeah and i think what you're saying is important because often family and friends feel the same way they don't know how to help someone with such an extreme pain. It's every person's worst nightmare to lose a child. And often to lose a child you haven't even met, you know, if you lose a child during a pregnancy mm -hmm. or you haven't figured out what their personality would be like. Um, but it's helpful for them to actually talk about that and to be allowed to talk about that because um, there's, you know, a lot of people in the community may feel that this is a grief that may be short-lived uh, because uh, their time with the child in utero was so short. So um, they expect them to recover quickly. But for the parents, it's a deep, deep loss. That's so interesting. Yeah, now I feel a certain sense of uh, like guilt right now because you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, a miscarriage is a fairly common thing, unfortunately. Like, I know many people that have had miscarriages, and it just isn't taken with the same level of gravity as if someone says that like their dad died or something like that. It's just not taken the same way at all. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously it should. Like you, like you said, they, they might have been planning out all these things for this child, and now it's all just... Sure. It, it's just in that, like in many fields, people are just not educated to this idea that the loss of a baby is a very profound loss. Um, you know, and 
there's no comparing whether the child uh, died early on in the first trimester or second trimester or later on, although um, as the pregnancy progresses, you're able to see photos, sonograms of your baby, and they feel increasingly real to them. The mother feels the baby kicking. That feels even you know more real. Mm. You start thinking about names. You prepare the room. It gets more and more concrete. So the, the grief in some way becomes even more profound. Um um, but people are just not given, again, they're not given permission to, to grieve. And they may not even understand themselves the effect it's going to have on them. You know, grief is kind of uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something you just kind of plunge into, dive into, without really knowing how it's going to affect you. Uh, um, because each one is so unique in its character. So people are just completely lost as to how to navigate that. And I just kind of accompany them. And uh, and allow them to have whatever feelings they're having, and also work with the, within the couple. I help them support each other. I uh, point out that often people don't grieve in the same way, and therefore, um, father and mother are going to do grieve differently, mm, and that it's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, yeah. That's that's got to be really difficult because typically, if somebody loses a parent or a sibling their husband or wife just kind of plays the support role, right? Like, oh, let me support you because you just lost your dad or whatever it is. But yeah, both parents lose the baby. Um, that, yeah, that's a really difficult issue. It's very hard, especially when both are really uh, down at the same time, angry at the same time, feeling guilty. And guilt arises a lot uh, with uh, those kinds of pregnancies because people may say, if I had done this, or if I had taken back care of myself, mm. or if I had exercised less, or whatever it is, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. It's very hard sometimes to point out or to pinpoint why a baby died during the pregnancy. Yeah. So it's very easy for mothers especially to feel responsible for it. Yeah, to just lie awake at night thinking of all the different little mistakes, or uh, not mistakes, like little choices that you made over yeah. the past however many months that maybe you could have made differently. Mm-hmm. Wow, man, that's interesting. Um, all right, let's uh, let's let's move on to talk about one of the other things that you do. So another just incredible way that you volunteer your time, and this is this is like volunteer work. So this isn't a you're not getting paid for this. B <laughs> you don't have to be doing this. Like you could be spending this time trying to just have fun or whatever it is. But so you spend your time volunteering with Laguna Honda, which is probably the biggest skilled nursing facility in San Francisco, like a nursing home, and they. Um, you work with their patients that are on palliative care. So like their patients that are like in hospice, they are going to be dying soon. Actively dying is the term. Yeah. It's usually within the last couple of weeks of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these, the, you know that this person is going to die. They don't really have any other family members to come and visit them. And then you go and spend time with them. What, first of all, like, thank you. That's like the most beautiful thing oh, I could ever welcome. imagine anyone doing. Like, what you're a welcome. gift. And, um, like, what is it like spending time with someone that you know is going to die? Is it, is it really like you're comforting the person or you're just being there? What, what is it exactly? I try to find out and imagine what this person has been like, the full life that they have lived. You know, I try to focus on the fact this is not just so and so about to die with whom I can barely interact because they may be 
you know, unconscious or not able to speak. Um, I tried to find out beforehand who they um, have been in their lifetime, mm. what sort of job they lived, whether they were married, had children, where they came from, what religion they have, if any. And, and then I tried to put a picture in my head of all those things that make up a human being. You know, the long life they may have lived. And I try to grieve in my own head for that life that has passed. And I try to be there with them, you know, just in my own mind, really, but just kind of offering a presence. Um, so they they may not uh, feel uh, quite so alone if, if they're aware of my presence. And that's not always the case. But, you know, you'll just never know. But it's better to um, to try to be... Um, to be present just in case they did mm. mm -hmm. that's incredible uh, hearing you say all that i <laughs> i can't imagine like what a strong person you are that i i i feel like if i were to volunteer my time doing that i would want to do the exact opposite and know as little as possible and oh. it, because it, it just would make it that much more difficult like what a wonderful thing to try to view these people and all that they are and all that they were versus just you know what they appear to be right now like view them as a spirit or a soul and not just their body I, um, it's interesting cause I, I used to work in, uh, in hospitals a lot myself and I would mm. be in surgery with doctors and in surgery, they cover up the entire patient except for the, like drape them except for the portion that the surgery is going to be performed on. Mm. So if you're having, um, like let's say a kidney removed or something like that, they would, uh, drape the entirety of your legs, the entirety of like your chest and your head. And it would just be your stomach basically that's uncovered. And part of that, I'm sure, is that if the patient wakes up, God forbid, or something happens with anesthesia, you don't want the patient to look down and see themselves cut open. But I've always thought that the main reason for that is because it's less weird. <laughs> like if you're a doctor and you're cutting open a person and there, there's their face right there and you can see their face, it's a lot weirder of a thing when you're... Uh, just cutting open this blank stomach right there. It's kind of like you're playing the board game operation or something. It's just like, oh, I'm just cutting open a stomach and not like I'm cutting open this person, you know? Right. And uh, it's funny that that's the way that the medical world works and that makes people feel comfortable and you're doing the exact opposite of that, which is you don't have to know uh, like what this person is like, but you want to try to imagine what this person is like. Yeah, clearly for a medical doctor, not only do you want to keep a sterile field, right. you want to <laughs> right. protect the patient from being aware of what's going on with them. And you also, I imagine, want to protect yourself from feeling too much yeah. in, in medicine and, and doing surgery. Whereas for me, what motivates me is the, the reverse, is that feeling of establishing intimacy so that people feel known in the hardest times of their lives. They don't feel invisible. They feel that there's a person who cares about them there. And um, and for some reason, whatever it is, um, I'm able to do that. So if I'm able to do that, I want to do it. Yeah. You know, it really motivates me. It makes me feel extremely grounded and calm. It doesn't make me nervous. Um, and, um, and I seek it out. But I also uh, have taught myself how to protect myself from, uh, from absorbing too much of the pain. You know, I always take time before and after a session with people to kind of either empty my mind or get ready for what I'm about to face, yeah. do you know a tiny bit of meditation, and I do the same afterwards so that I can clear it and move on to the next thing. Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk more about that in a second, like what your whole routine is when you're not working, because I imagine it's got to be extensive. Uh, uh, but 
Before we go into that, if you could just tell uh-huh. us the name of the organization that you work with, that you volunteer your time for the um, the people at Laguna Honda, like hospice care and stuff like that, in case anybody else wants to volunteer their time like that. It's called No One Dies Alone. No One Dies Alone? N-O-D-A. And it is offered in many hospitals in the country now. Okay, cool. I'll put a link up to that on the oh, website good. in case Thank people you. are driving. That way, um, if that sounds like a And the volunteer costume, shifts volunteer. are two hours long, so it's really not that long. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk about your own mental health and trying to deal with all this. So uh, what do you do when you're not working and you're not volunteering your time in these really incredibly difficult ways? Do you just like exercise like a maniac and meditate <laughs> all the time or something? Like I can't imagine how you clear your head from all of this. You know, I give myself and I try to take a lot of the same advice I give to people as they're grieving. Take care of yourself. Eat healthy. Drink lots of water. Uh, don't drink too much alcohol, too much coffee. Uh, make sure you have some form of exercise in your life so you can sleep better and you kind of, you know, release stress. Make sure that you reach out to friends and family. Make sure you ask for help when you need it. Make sure that you let people know what it is that you need. They can't read your mind. Um, make sure you find distraction and fun in your life, whatever that is. Um, I love going for walks. I love to travel. I love to watch four-inch films. You know, what? everybody's got their ways of kind of recharging. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of my own wellness and, you know, self-care um, methods really parallel those that um, I try to teach people that I work with, either in the disaster world where I also volunteer, or uh, with volunteers whom I train, or uh, people who are grieving. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit more as well about how you yourself, and then like, I guess, advice, because it it sounds like a lot of these things really parallel what you're asking your patients to do, which is great. Um, How you just kind of deal with, with holding the emotion of sadness so close without letting it just like completely envelop you it's a kind of a two-sided method where you allow yourself to feel with someone which is really what empathy means feeling with Mm. uh, having compassion for someone so allowing it to reach you so that you can understand how it affects the other person as well as kind of keeping kind of a closed back so that you know you are strong. So you, you have the softness and the strength at the same time. Mm. And that's, what, that's how I think of it. And you need to cultivate both. And that comes with practice and it comes with time, being able to do that. Clearly, if I were to see uh, 10 couples uh, a day who had lost a baby, I would not be able to maintain that sort of strength. Um, I try to limit it to about two or three per day and then do other kind of work in between and and then always make sure I've got a bit of relaxation in between. My work is really quite varied even though it all deals with grief and trauma. Uh, But because it is varied, it allows me to kind of switch um, my mind a little bit from one to the other so it helps me recover. Mm -hmm. Pascal, do you feel like having gone down this path in life and been a being a grief counselor for the entirety of time that you've done it has, has like changed you in any way as a person? I hope it has. I hope it has informed me as a very deep level on, um, on how deeply people feel, how much, um, how much pain can affect us, how loss can affect us. I hope it has um, stretched my ability to understand people from different cultures and different religious groups. 
I hope it has uh, made me more humble in that um, I am able to see how long it takes to recover from losses. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes I think about this sort of advice I used to live in my 20s and 30s when I was a family therapist. I expected people to just, okay, here's some tips for you to cope. Go ahead and do them. It just just isn't like that. You need patience. Um, so I'm hoping that I'm a more patient person um, as a result of my work. Yeah. Definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because if you're for other forms of psychology or other forms of therapy, a lot of times there might be something that somebody is working on, right? Like, oh, I have this thing. Like, I have this issue with weight. Like, help me out. And then there's this like clear indicator like, oh, I've lost I've lost some weight. So things are going well. Or like, oh, I've changed my diet for two months now. Things are going well um, versus like the things that you deal with, there's not kind of these clear indicators that mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, like things are good for me now, you know? Um, it's so much more nebulous, which is interesting for both you and the patient. Mm, uh, that's like so, you said, it takes a lot of patience, I mean. That's so true because the loss of someone stays with you your whole life, even if it's the loss of a baby. Yeah. Um, and there are many, many triggers. There are, there's the due date. If you've lost a baby before your due date, uh, holidays are very difficult. Anniversaries when you've lost a spouse are very difficult. Your parents' birthdays are very difficult times. Um, and so it's not as though you can turn the door and close the door on pain. It gets relived again and again. And, um, Hopefully what you want to see, at least in my work as a grief counselor, is a bit of change. You don't want people to stagnate at a particular deep level of pain. You want to see people move in and out of it and mm. have the lows be less intense, the pain be less intense, or being able to recover faster when they have a very tough time. Right. Um, so yes, it's usually something that stays with them for a long, long time. And actually it's quite interesting because people often are worried that if they start um, recovering and hurting less is an indication that they may forget things about the person that they lost. Somehow pain keeps them in the memory zone of mm -hmm. that person. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I try to explain that um, you can continue your life and live after loss in a way that honors that person's memory with or without pain. You know, there's different ways of going about it, you know, such as uh, honoring someone's legacy. Um, I knew, for example, of a man who lost his wife to Alzheimer's and she loved to garden. So every year when the tomatoes come in, he's, you know, he takes care of the garden. Hmm. He goes and collects tomatoes and delivers to the to the neighbors. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Or uh, there's people who, um, if they um, have a bit of money, may offer a scholarship in someone's name or may keep a Facebook page open and post things on it. You know, if that person was an artist, continue posting some of the work, what, whatever it is. So there's ways to continue the memory without engaging in quite as much pain over time. Mm, that's really interesting. So that actually kind of touches on my last question a little bit, um, but it, maybe, maybe some more like generalized advice. Let's try to give people some advice if you could for if they themselves are going through a really tough time or um, some things to kind of keep in mind the next time that they are going through some sort of grief? Mm -hmm. The first thing to remember that I tell people um, is that grief, and it is a bit repetitive because I've said that earlier, grief is very unique and it's going to affect them in one particular way that may be different uh, from a time that they've experienced grief in the past because of the meaning 
of the loss uh, of the person that that um, that died. Um, so I I tried to educate them a little bit about the the feelings they may be experiences, uh, the some of the behavioral changes they may notice. Sometimes they may want to be alone. Other times they need to be with other people. Um, I basically let them know that whatever feeling they have is okay. It's okay, and it's a natural response to grief and to loss, to experience those kinds of thoughts and feelings. Um, I also encourage them to uh, reach out to friends and family, to let them know what they need, not to be too strong and to try to do everything on their own. Mm. Um, I let people, um, you know, give them tips, like, you know, maybe it would be helpful to keep a bit of a journal so that uh, it helps you kind of formulate your thoughts and your feelings, and maybe down the road you'll be able to read back and see that, that you have indeed made progress. Mm, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, what else do I do? Um, um, as I mentioned before, um, uh, exercise, good health, taking care of oneself is a good thing, finding relaxation. Um, one interesting thing that is very helpful is to tell people to try to maintain as close a routine to their previous life as they can so they don't feel they lose even that. And it, even though they may have to force themselves to do that, it's actually helpful to go through the motion of life. Mm. A lot of the recovery is a little bit of faking, you know, faking to be able to function at work, faking to be able to function as a parent in your relation with your children. Uh, but that catches on after a while. Yeah. At the same time, making small decisions are okay, but making big decisions are probably to be avoided. You're just not strong enough. Some people may decide to move to a smaller place because the husband or wife has died uh, or move away, um, you know, out of pain or remaining in the same circle. But then they may cut themselves off from their sources of support. Mm, yeah. Um, um, I tell people that they've also lost not just that person, but all the many roles that that person played in their life. That person may have taken care of the money. Uh, you know, in, in a couple, or may have been the cook, or may have been the gardener. All those functions are going to have to be replaced, and I help them figure out how they're going to go about it. So some of the advice is actually quite practical. Yeah, it sounds like it. How are you going to learn to take care of your own money? Who can you who uh, who can you reach out to? Or if if the person is lonely, at what times do you actually feel the most lonely? If it's at nighttime, which is often the case, what can you do? Is there a friend you can talk to, say at nine o'clock at night, just a quick call to say hello and kind of touch base with someone. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Those so, are all great pieces of advice. So some are emotional tips. Others are practical tips, you know, just like um, the rest of our lives. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Pascal, this has been so awesome and interesting and uh, yeah, just really beautiful. It's nice to uh, talk about things like this. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show. Then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.